This episode of the Restoration Radio Network is sponsored by myself, Frankie Logue, and a group of anonymous laymen in honor and memory of Bishop Gerard de Laurier and Archbishop Tuck, two veterans of the traditional movement. We would also like to mention here a fundraiser which we are conducting for the United Kingdom Sedevacantist Mission. Please visit catholicmass.co.uk in order to donate. That is catholicmass.co.uk. Welcome to another episode of Clerical Conversations. My name is Stephen Heiner, and I'm with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. Your Excellency, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's nice to be here. I'm going to talk about the t- the topic for today's episode by by starting with a a remembrance of a dinner I had back in 2014, uh, a little while after I had just gotten here to Paris, and I went out with the priest who manages the Paris Chapel for the IMBC, the Institute of Our Lady of Good Counsel, it's Father Jocelyn Legault. And of course, uh, being from the Institute, he picked an Italian restaurant, not that surprising. And uh, I think before the appetizers even made it to the table, he asked me uh, how I felt about the thesis. And uh, it was it was fascinating to me because the dynamics in Europe about the thesis it, are so different from the dynamics of the United States. And having spent twenty five years of my life in the United States and only five of uh, five of them in Europe, I really didn't know. And and the last time I was in Europe living as a student, I wasn't a set of a contest. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So I I laughed when he asked me, and I said. I am an opinionist on this matter. <laughs> I said I've 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 looked at, I've heard both both arguments and he says and and have you not made a decision? <laughs> you know, so you know it's like an altar call, you know, have I have I made yes, my decision yes. for Christ. And I said uh does my does my opinion matter on this subject um father? And he said yes. He says it's very important. How you know uh and mm-hmm. and he said it with such earnestness. And I remember I was a bit amused and not in a mocking way. I was honestly surprised and taken a bit back. We managed to stir the conversation to other topics, but I told him, I said, I will look more into it. I will, I will go back and I will look at Bishop Sanborn's article and, and I'll, I'll give it more thought. And I think roughly three or four months later, I having looked at the matter again, I had said, well, I guess I'm, I'm thesis by default by if you uh for our listeners who haven't had a chance to to read his excellency's explanation we'll link it in the show notes but if you if you read at the end of uh the explanation he says uh this is our position if the totalitaire crowd would like to put forward their position um we are listening uh in fact i'll read i'll read the last sentence so if the totalists can successfully address the problem of the continuity of the hierarchy founded upon St. Peter, we material formalists are listening. So having read that and having seen no literature from the totalitaire school, I said that I'm essentially thesis by default, and I have been so for the last couple years. The reason that I've never brought this up as a restoration radio topic is because we have a state of peace in the United States regarding this issue. And in fact, we have clergy on Restoration Radio that are not a uh, thesis, um, most notably Father Chikada, who is who is a totalitaire um, priest. So what I, given, given that context, Your Excellency, for both Europe 
and the United States. Can you give our listeners some insight into why you think the thesis issue is such a big deal in Europe, why it's been less of a deal in the United States, and why you think Father Legal was right to give me a hard time at dinner that evening? <laughs> That's like those questions they give to the president. Yeah, you know, they give them three questions at once. You know, they, they uh, so, uh, give me number. Give me number one again. Sure. Why do you think it was such the thesis is such a big deal in Europe? Is it because it was it was um, conceived of here? No, uh, I just think that uh, I, I think it goes back to European politics. Uh, how many political parties are there in Europe, in France? Well, Has anyone counted? I mean, we had 11 people running in the first round of the presidential <laughs> election. So, well, that was almost true here, but the, as <laughs> There is a, um, a, a, particularly in France, but also it, 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 the, the, it, there is a, a difficulty in, in seeing what we might call wiggle room in the, in the sense that in the practical order, not in the theoretical order, but in the practical order, a wiggle room uh, that is uh, living with uh, someone that disagrees with you. Uh, in the, America is built on that. America is built on all of these people arriving in this huge land and managing to have a civil relationship with people that they would never want to live next door to, perhaps, never want in their living rooms, you know, uh, totally different in religion and culture and, and race and background. You know, not that there's any hatred necessarily, but, you know, they're different. You know, they're just different people, uh, Italians, Irish, and Germans, and Poles. And so there was always this uh, tendency in America to make your Polish neighborhood or your Irish neighborhood and live out a, a little life, you know, a little micro world. Uh, and uh, But you would still be able to go into the Italian store and, and be nice and get along with them. That, that's America. See, uh, you wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, marry Italian, but you know, you would go to an Italian restaurant. You see, the so that's America. That, that's you know, there's a sort of civil common denominator whereby all Americans get along and they all have a same fundamental culture. But then there's these mini or micro cultures. So I I would attribute it to that mentality among Americans that, well, somehow we have to get along on this, you know, that there are, uh, there are all of these other things upon which we do get along, and we get along on the essential issue, which is, which is that he is not the Pope. See, uh, and the, that the thesis is an explanation of how he is not the Pope. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, therefore, it's something that's purely a matter of opinion, but I'm saying that uh, it is, uh, uh, let's see, the one notch down from the fact that he is not the Pope. So we will not get along theologically with people who are una cum, that is, that people who are uh, convinced that this Bergoglio is the true Pope. We cannot get along with them liturgically, theologically, and the practical order because that is a dividing line uh, that is based on the hierarchy itself. Uh, so the, whereas 
we do cooperate uh, with uh, people who are totalists uh, uh, on the liturgical level, on, on pastoral level. I mean, we have no trouble at all doing that. Uh, and uh, because this is an explanation of how he is not the Pope. Uh, so the, uh, th that, that's the basis for it. But I think Europeans have trouble doing that. If you disagree about things, you must separate. Uh, that, that's just in their blood. It's especially in the French blood. You, it's inconceivable that you could disagree about something and yet cooperate. Mm. I just know them. I, I've lived with them for years. I know them. Yes. And, and uh, so I, I think it is sort of a, a strange phenomenon for the, for the uh, French to see that. Uh, and, uh, but I think it goes back to a cultural, almost political thing. Well, and you've answered both of those questions, then, Your Excellency. You've answered both why you think in America it's not that big of a deal and why you think it is a very big deal in Europe. So then my, my last question was, do you think it was right for Father Legal to give me such a hard time at dinner? Yes, in this sense that the thesis, while it is only a theological explanation of how he is not the Pope, nonetheless explains certain things about the hierarchy and the continuity of the hierarchy which demand by faith an explanation. You see, that's why it's important. It's not just how many angels can fit on the head of a pen or, or you know, what, how many wings the angels have or something like that. This is something that it, the explanation flows directly from what revelation demands concerning the church, the continuity of the hierarchy, the visibility of the church, and other big dogmatic items. And the, the problem is, and you alluded to it, is, at least in my view, is that the totalists do not address those things. They do not have a whole system which says, this is how you have continuity, this is how you have visibility. Uh, the, and we'll see that as we discuss it. Uh, and, and that's why it's important. And, was, and that's why I said, you know, if you can come up essentially with a better explanation of these things, we're listening. Uh, that, that, but these things need to be explained and these things need to be uh, maintained. Uh, and so that's why it's important. The, the, what is absolute is that you need to have a, a viable explanation of how the church continues when it's deprived of authority. Well, and the first couple pages of the bishop's explanation is setting the table, and we'll assume that our Restoration Radio listeners are familiar with, obviously, the church after Vatican II, the three reactions, the conserved Novus Ordo, the indult, uh, slash SSPX, and, and the set of contests. Uh, so His Excellency taught, walks people through that. So that gets us to uh, page three, uh, and it starts with the demands of Catholic dogma. And uh, His Excellency lists five points. One, the Catholic Church is infallible. Two, the Catholic Church is indefectible. Three, it is impossible that he who is the Roman pontiff could officially teach doctrines contrary to Catholic faith and morals or could approve or even permit a false liturgy or evil disciplines for the whole church. Four, it is impossible that he who officially teaches doctrines contrary to Catholic faith and morals, or who approves or even permits a false liturgy or evil disciplines for the whole church, could be the Roman pontiff. And five, 
by divine right, there must be a perpetual line of successors of St. Peter. So assuming that our audience follows you on all those points, are there any of the five that you, you really want to clarify or drill down on? Well, they're all, they all pertain to Catholic doctrine. You know, the, uh, that's the first thing to say. It's not as if these are theological issues that can be discussed. <laughs> these, are, these are all Catholic doctrines. Uh, and uh, that I would say that they must understand deeply each one of those before they can proceed. They can't uh, just memorize it or, or breeze through it. Those are huge dogmas, <laughs> and they'll never understand the thesis uh, unless they understand those demands that are made by, by Catholic doctrine, Catholic dogma, upon how we view these post-conciliar popes. See, the, that the, you know, those things must be preserved. So they have to either educate themselves or contemplate those things and, and realize as they make their way through the explanation that, that they, those are ever-present demanding. See, they're, they're, they, they are, they are uh, severe judges demanding a, a correct explanation. And so that, that, that's, that's all I would say about them, that if they don't understand those principles, they need to educate themselves. All right, so that will move us on to your three theologically certain truths. One, it is impossible that a public heretic be the Roman pontiff. Two, there is such a thing as material succession. And three, the Novus Ordo popes have material succession. I think these three points need a little bit more clarification from you, Your Excellency, as people may not be as familiar with them. Yes, well, number one is that it's impossible for a public heretic to be the Roman pontiff. Uh, this is one of the arguments uh, against the papacy of Bergoglio and the other uh, heretics since Vatican II, uh, and that is that the Roman pontiff must, by his very nature as Roman pontiff, be the living rule of faith for the whole church. In other words, his profession of faith is an intrinsic and essential part of his nature as Roman pontiff. Because you remember the old saying, you know, he's more Catholic than the Pope, mm. as sort of as a joke. That's because the Pope is the standard. Just as you have a ruler, if you want to measure something, you have a, a standard, a ruler, and you take that out and you measure the piece of wood or whatever you're doing, because it must come up to the standard. And so also he must be the standard of the faith for the whole church. Otherwise, he cannot possibly fulfill his function. And that's proper to him, uh, that, that he be the, the, this point on the top of, of the pyramid, so to speak, or the mountain, uh, where, where, which joins all things together, you know, where all things are pulled together in a single unit of unity of faith. And, and uh, without that, he falls. So also, it is impossible... Uh, that a public heretic be a member of the church. The, you are drummed out of the church. Uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way. You, you are 
you cease to have a relationship with Christ as head of the church when you cease to profess the Catholic faith because you undo the effect of, of your baptism, which is to incorporate you into the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. The mystical body of Christ, the church, is a society of believers. The, the ticket to belong to the Catholic church is to believe. If you cease believing, you cease to be a Catholic. And this is confirmed by all theologians. I'm not saying anything out on a limb here. Uh, it, it is a society of those who believe. So even if you should fall into mortal sin, terrible mortal sins, but you still believe and you profess the faith, you are uh, still a member of the Catholic Church. Hmm. See, because that's your ticket. I still believe. But if you undo that by heresy, you cease to be a member of the Catholic Church. And very obviously, membership in the Catholic Church is required for him who is its head. <laughs> you know, if, if your head is the head of Frankenstein, you know, the, the, it, you know, common sense would say, well, if he's not a Catholic, he can't possibly be the Pope. <laughs> right. Because the Pope is the supreme Catholic. He's Catholic more than anybody else is Catholic. And, and so, uh, so all of that is available to common sense. So, uh, uh, so that's number one, okay? Uh, however, I usually do not argue, as I've said in other talks and other presentations, I don't argue that because the, our adversaries uh, bring up things that confuses the whole thing, and they, they confuse themselves the the sin of heresy and the crime of heresy, because uh, heresy is already a sin, just like murder is a sin, but then it's an ecclesiastical crime. And they try to confuse the, the lay people by saying, well, he's not, he has not been accused, he has not been brought in front of a tribunal, nobody can bring him in front of a tribunal, therefore he is not guilty before the law, and from that they move over to say, well, then he's not guilty, period, and he's still the Pope. And they, they, you know, they bring out all of these Latin tomes and, and whatnot to try to prove that. It, that's false what they're saying, but the average layperson has a hard time responding to that, and, and he gets confused. You know, he hears both sides, and, and he, he, it's, it's very difficult for him to, to sort it out. So my argument is always something that the layperson already knows and doesn't need any conviction about, and that is the Novus Ordo is a new religion. It's a new false religion. Proof. Why aren't you going there if it's the Catholic religion? So, so I've already, he's already conceded the, 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 the minor, what we call the minor premise of the argument. <laughs> To see that, that, that he knows that that's not Catholic, otherwise he wouldn't even be listening to me. And as I always say, if it is Catholic, well, let's go to it and we'll bring the balloons and we'll start blowing them up. I'll put on the clown suit and we will go to heaven blowing up balloons in clown suits. You know, if that's the path to heaven, then I want to be in the clown suit. <laughs> It's quite, see, it's quite something to I, imagine you in a clown suit. Right? <laughs> I'm being facetious, but I'm, I'm doing so in order to make the point that every Catholic since Vatican II 
has to make that evaluation about the religion that's going on in his parish. See, so if it is not the Catholic religion, uh, and uh, any traditionalist would say, no, that's not Catholic, that's why I'm at the traditional mass, uh, you work back and say, well, that cannot possibly come from an infallible and indefectible church. Then you work back to the hierarchy, who are the possessors of the infallibility and indefectibility of the church, and you say, that is a sign, a certain sign, like a red light on your dashboard, that these people are phonies. Because they couldn't do this to the church if they had the assistance of the Holy Ghost, if they were truly the hierarchy of the church. See, so that's a very tight argument, extremely tight, because it's all true. <laughs> and there's, there's nowhere to go from that. So, so uh, the, I always argue that way. But the, the argument that uh, you know, a, a Roman pontiff, uh, someone cannot be a Roman pontiff if he's a heretic, is uh, absolutely valid. I would not impugn it in any way. Uh, it's just that I find it troublesome for people because they can't verify all of the facts about it and all of the theory about it. Uh, it's also true that our problem is not so much that he's a heretic, but that he's trying to make me a heretic. See, he's putting in my parish something that is unacceptable and not Catholic. See, if he were some not in Rome, spewing out all sorts of crazy things at the Santa Marta, but you still had the traditional faith and the traditional Latin Mass in your parish, you'd say, well, you know, we have to get through this one, or, or you know, it would not be such of a problem for you. Yeah, sure, you, you know, all the principles would still apply, but it's not a problem for you. So the, the, the problem is that this false religion has been spread about everywhere, and we are driven into a catacombic situation in order to preserve our faith. That's the problem. See, so uh, th those are, you know, just some explanations of, of number one. So that brings us to number two. I think so. There is such a thing as material succession. Yes. Now here you have to get into what we call the philosophy of authority. And that's something that is hard for people to understand. Everything uh, that is outside of God has what we call act and potency. That means there is in every single thing that God made a receptive principle and an active principle. Think of, for example, uh, a king who is signing a document and sealing it, you know, a medieval king. He pours the wax down on uh, the hot wax that's going to receive the, the seal, puts a big blob of hot wax, and then wham, he, he hits it with his seal, and there you have the seal of the king. And you see these on the older documents. And there you see act and potency. The potency is a principle that can receive something else. And act is something that can give something else. It can give itself. See? So the, the, the wax could receive anybody's uh, seal. It could be you know, the sultan of, of you know, Constantinople. It could be the king of France. It's, it's open to all things. 
whereas the the seal of the king of France has very specific insignia on it. Everybody knows this is the king of France. You see, wham! It goes down on the on the wax, and the wax receives it and displays, therefore, what is on the seal. So that's act and potency. So there's a receptive principle, is an active principle. All right, that is in everything except God. Okay, he is pure act. He has no, no. He doesn't learn anything. He can't become anything. There's no receptive principle in him. So, authority has a, a potency in act. What is the potency? The potency in, in authority is designation. That is that there is someone designated to be in a position of authority. The act and what makes someone an authority is the power of God. So St. Paul says all authority comes from God. So for example, we in this country elect a president in November, but who has no power. But he is distinguished from an ordinary citizen in as much as he has the designation to power. And he has to wait until January to receive the power. How does he receive the power? By swearing that he will uphold the Constitution. So that means he's swearing that he will see to the good of this country. And only then will the power pass to him when he has sworn that he will assure the good ends of this country. Now, imagine a president who pushes aside the Constitution or says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to uphold that Constitution. I've got a new one here in my pocket that's a lot better. I'll swear to uphold this Constitution, but not the one that was done in 1789. He would not receive the power. They would just pull back from him. There would be a scandal. He would be run off. Because the transfer of power comes on condition that you intend the true ends of power. Authority, by its very nature, intends the good of the community over which the authority is set. So if you do not intend that good, you posit an obstacle to the authority. Uh, that's what we call matter and form in, in authority, or act and potency in authority. That means the same thing. So in the Pope, there is a, 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 and in bishops, there is a matter and a form, there is a, a potency and an act. The potency is a, a, a designation to receive the power. The, uh, the act is the power from God to rule the church. And they must uh, intend to uphold the, the good of the church, and the primary good of the church is the continuity of doctrine. Uh, they must intend to uphold that in order to receive the power. So it is conceivable, just as the president would not become the president if he repudiated the Constitution, so also it is conceivable that someone legitimately de designated to become the bishop or the pope could by rejecting, let's say, the constitution of the church and trying to impose a new one on it, uh, would not obtain the power. And therefore, he's in a, a sort of a no man's land of not a private 
uh, parishioner or member of the church, but at the same time, he doesn't have the power to rule. And so, and well, how does that change? As in the case of the president, the Congress would have to act and pull away from him the designation or the Supreme Court or somebody. Some act of authority of the government must draw that away from him, pull it away from him by, a, by an official act, a legal act. So also, uh, someone legally designated does not lose his designation unless it is taken away from him by some legal act of the church. See, so we're saying then that in the thesis that whereas they do not have power to, from God to rule the church, therefore they are not true popes because they don't have the power, nonetheless, we are in a terrible situation in which they retain legitimate designation and we can't do anything about it because the very bodies and, and functions of the church that ought to take it away from him are also infected with the heresy and they do not act against him. That's in a nutshell what the thesis is saying, but you have to understand that about authority. Most people do not distinguish those two things. You see, they think that designation means power. It doesn't. It simply means designation. So in the church, the, the pope, the designation of the pope comes from below, that is the church. The power of the pope comes from above, namely God. And it's the power that makes you the pope, not the designation. Just as what makes the seal or the wax, the, that of the king of France, in my original example, is not the wax, but it's the, the seal itself that comes down from the king's hand. Hmm. See. So point three then is the Novus Ordo popes, quote unquote, have material succession. Yes. Uh, the reason, well, uh, first of all, let me point out that material succession is, is admitted by all theologians. Uh, in most cases, with regard to the Greek Orthodox in apostolic sees, see the Greek Orthodox and, and the Orthodox in general, not just Greeks, are in possession of some apostolic sees, such as Alexandria, such as Jerusalem, um, uh, Antioch, uh, um, a few others, Ephesus maybe. And um, so after the schism, they continue to name people to these sees, and so there is a succession of bishops to the present day in these apostolic sees. And so theologians say, well, they have a material succession. They have no power to rule the church, but they do have a material succession in those sees. All right, so it's not some invention. Everybody admits that they have material succession. Some even would say that the, the Anglicans have a material succession, but that, that's disputed. But the, the concept of material succession is not something that has been hatched by the thesis people, not at all. All right, it's a, a very common um, uh, uh, position. The only difference between what that is and what the thesis is saying is that the designation in the case of the Greek Orthodox is not legitimate designation. In other words, it doesn't come from a body that has the legal uh, power 
excuse me, to designate. Whereas in the case of the Novus Ordo, the designation is legal. Be why? Because the Novus Ordo has not done anything to undo the legal continuity of the institution of the church. See, they have not overthrown the papacy or the episcopacy. They have not said, we're just going to let lay people run the diocese. Uh, we're just going to you know, dissolve the papacy. They have named legitimate successors one after the other, and therefore they, they are continuing this continuity of legal designation in the Novus Ordo, even though there's no continuity of authority. Because those are two lines which are really different and really distinct. Why are they really distinct? Because designation, as I said, comes from below. It comes from the church, whereas the authority comes from above. So you could have a designated person who never achieves the authority. And that's what, uh, that's what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying it is. It's, a, it's equivalent to a dead body of authority. So it, it, by the examples you cited earlier, so let's say I'm the uh, schismatic um, archbishop or whatever whatever the correct uh, metropolitan, I, I'm not certain for Ephesus what, what the title would be. Uh, and so I'm schismatic and I convert to Catholicism. Do I, uh, awaiting some designation from the, from the Holy Father, do I then become the archbishop of, of Ephesus? No, be or because your, your designation was illegitimate. That is from people who were legally cut off from the Catholic Church. See, so they have no position at all to designate anybody because they were legally cut off from the Catholic Church. Because designation regards the church as it is a legal institution. See, it would be like if you and I got together and elected, you know, uh, Jason as, as the president of the United States, uh, you know, one of your interviewers. He's a great guy. I think he would make a great president. Why don't you and I get together and elect him the president of the United States? We have no, no legal position at all to do that. See, but the, the way in which the modernists got in was by possessing legal positions. See, by their subterfuge, getting into legal positions, and but at the same time carrying with them the germ of modernism. So you have this double problem. And as you have people who are le legitimately designated in those positions, but they have the heresy of modernism. That's our very problem. That's our very problem. If they had legitimate designation and the faith, we have no problem. If they had no faith and no legitimate designation, we have no problem. But the reason why we are in such a turmoil is that they still possess that legitimate designation. And that's why people cannot see them as non-popes. See, they have such trouble. Well, he's elected the Pope, you know, Vivial Papa, he lives in St. Peter's. Uh, the, 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 they understand that implicitly, that there is a, a continuity there. So they don't care what the Archbishop of Canterbury says. If he stands on his head and says, you know, there's a hundred gods and, and, you know, they're all women, 
We don't care about that. <laughs> you know, I don't care what he says. I don't even know who he is. I don't know his name. Because he has neither the faith nor legitimate designation. See, but when Bergoglio is where he is and has not entered the Vatican by means of a machine gun, but has come through a normal election and a whole process of election from which has legal continuity from before the council, he's a problem. See, so you know, the obvious comeback from saying he's not the Pope is, well, you know, he's elected the Pope. Well, who else is the Pope? If he's elected, he's the Pope, just like you would say that, you know, the president. <laughs> Some people are trying to undo President Trump's election. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, but that, that's the, the principle, is that there are these two elements to authority. See, so, and, and so we're saying that because they have not done anything against the continuity of legal designation. In fact, they have very carefully preserved it. Very carefully preserved it. They continue the lineage of authority from St. Peter, that is, lineage of designation from St. Peter, and not authority in the sense, but they, you know, the, who, those who are designated to receive the authority they continue that from St. Peter. And that corresponds to a demand. Actually, it's in Vatican I, stay fide, that there will be perpetual successors of St. Peter until the end of time. You could not have that perpetual succession unless you have the perpetuity of a body or a means, some legal means of designating those successors. So, again, to use the example, suppose you and I get together and say we will elect Justin, uh, or Jason rather, the Pope. All right? Well, what are you, crazy? You know, two people are going to elect the Pope? You know, are you out of your mind? Why are you out of your mind? Because you have absolutely no claim at all to elect the Pope. No legal claim to elect the Pope. So, whereas... The, the church must always have, in order to be the Catholic Church, a, like a, a, a single string or rope going back to St. Peter, whereby there is legitimate legal succession. If it loses that, it ceases to be the Catholic Church. It ceases to be the church which Christ founded. And so there's a hand in glove that not only does this make sense from what we're seeing, but also it fits into the demands of Catholic dogma. So, you, the, our listeners might be uh, might be thinking now at this point, uh, His Excellency is going to talk about the thesis, but we're not done yet. We still need to put forward a few more principles. And uh, if you're wondering why, it's important to make sure that we understand the terms and the construct that. Uh, the thesis is housed under, and we can't do that if we don't understand every aspect. So I'll ask our listeners to be patient. We have four more principles to go over, and then um, His Excellency will explain the thesis to us. So those four are, natural things are composed of matter and form. There is, two, there is a matter and form in authority. Three, there is a real difference between the power to designate and the power to rule. And four, 
there can be a difference between what is in fact true and what is legally true. All right, Your Excellency, I think probably all four of those need explanation, especially for those who may not have had a background in philosophy. Yeah, so give me number one again. <laughs> Natural things are composed of matter and form. Uh, that's I have already explained that uh, matter and form. Uh, matter is the receptive principle in in anything at all. The form is what makes it to be what it is. All right. So, for example, the human soul makes you to be a human being. Uh, without the soul, you return to chemicals. Very quickly, I mean, uh, the embalming process uh, stops or, or retards it, but very quickly you're on your way back to basic chemicals and essentially dirt, because there is nothing to organize that matter into anything but dirt. So it's going to immediately take on new forms that uh, that that uh, uh, you know different chemicals, but that's not a human being. So, you know, somebody that's lying in the coffin, that's his body. It's not him. Or I should say he, it's better English. Uh, it's not he, it's, it's his body. It's the, and it's the remains of his body. You can't even say it's really truly his body. It's his remains. See, so, uh, so the, the, um, uh, if, uh, for example, someone carves a, a statue of Our Lady out of wood, he gets a big hunk of wood that is formless. It's just a piece of wood. And then he starts carving Our Lady's image on it. And, you know, then it turns out to be a beautiful statue. And the form is, is the result of his carving, that he is placing upon that matter a conformity to the Virgin Mary. But that remains a piece of wood. All it is is a piece of wood materially. See, so a fine statue that might be worth millions of dollars from the Middle Ages or something is a piece of wood. <laughs> you see, its form is imposed upon it. And, and the reason why it's worth millions of dollars is because of that beautiful form, not because it's a piece of wood from the Middle Ages. Same is true of marble. Same is true of, of many other, other things. So, I mean, those are, are clear examples. And so also... Authority has this matter and form. Act and potency, that means the same thing. It has a, a potential principle, which we call material principle. That is the designation to receive authority. And then, excuse me, there is a formal principle. That is the authority itself, which makes a person to be the pope or the president or the king. See, that's what makes him the king is the authority. Not that he's merely... Uh, you know the the firstborn son of the of the of the of the you know his father the king, it's the authority his power to rule that makes him the king, not not his birth. His birth is merely a designation. So those are our first those are our first two, and then you lead on to that. There is a real difference between the power to designate and the power to rule. Yes. There is a real difference, and what we call a real difference, not merely a, a distinction of reason, you know, just something like uh, 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 the difference between a sword and a saber or something where there's really no, no uh, real distinction, but we might distinguish it for some reason. That's known as a distinction of reason. There's a real distinction. That means there's two different things here, like a banana and an apple, two different things. And there is a real distinction if 
these two things come from two different sources, two different causes. And they do come from two different causes. As I said, designation comes from below, that is, from the Catholic Church. Authority comes from our Lord Jesus Christ, the invisible head of the Church. So those two things, in order to create a Pope, must come together. If one or the other is lacking, then you have no Pope. So a person who has some idiotic, silly designation, for example, that I and, and you should elect Jason, the Pope, it becomes laughable. What, you know, what do you, you know, you need your head examined. You know, we're trying to elect this person, the Pope. He would make a great Pope, too. And not only would he make a great president, but he'd make a great Pope. The, the, uh, but we can't do that. See, because we have no, no power to designate. Now, I'm an American citizen. I have a power to designate the President of the United States. As, as little as my vote may count, nonetheless, I have a power to designate. I don't have the power to designate the, the, king, the, the king of France, the, the president of France. I have no nothing in France. If I go to France as an election, I can't vote. But I have the power to designate, but I don't have the power to rule because of that reason. I, I cannot make a law, but I have a power to designate. I have an active voice in designation. See, so... But his power comes from God after he has made clear that he will uphold the, the good ends of this country, the good of this country, by observing the Constitution. And that's why all of the armed forces and the police, everybody must swear an oath that they will uphold the purpose of their function. Otherwise, they don't get the power. A policeman has the power to arrest you and incarcerate you. Why? He has that from the state. The state gets it from God. And he cannot obtain that power unless he is designated by the state to receive it and that he makes known to the state that he will uphold the laws. And he has to do that by oath. And our last principle is there can be a difference between what is in fact true and what is legally true. Yes, uh, the, I'll give an example. If you were to uh, see a, a crime take place, let's say a little old lady uh, uh, walking along and minding her own business and a thug comes along and beats her up and throws her on the ground and, and kills her and takes her money, you are a witness to a real crime. That is really true that that took place. But he is innocent before the law until he is arrested, tried, and proven guilty. See, so the, the law, the eyes of the law lag behind the actual fact. So, and it could happen that for some reason, because of a great defense lawyer, that thug is acquitted. Now, what comes to mind in, in, for everybody is O.J. Simpson. You know, if you were to ask anybody after that trial, do you think O.J. Simpson was guilty? Everyone said, oh, he's as guilty as sin. But he was acquitted. So, I mean, I'm not getting into that, but I'm just pointing that out as a, a way in which the law 
sees differently from the common opinion, at least, of the fact. See, so it is quite possible that the law acquit where fact accuses and condemns. And, and also there's a lag between the fact and the recognition by law. There's a lag, always. See. Almost always. So something can be true in the real order and not true in the legal order. And vice versa, an innocent man can be condemned even to death. And it's happened many times in history. Because in the legal order, he's guilty. In fact, he's innocent. So those two orders have to be separated in the consideration of the thesis of who, who these, these post-conciliar popes are. Those two orders have to be separated. And now, Your Excellency, after all of the uh, setting of principles and uh, clearing uh, of misconceptions, our, our audience is ready to hear the thesis. Yes, the thesis is this, that the uh, post-conciliar popes, uh, let's start with John XXIII, have legitimate designation from the Catholic Church to receive the authority of Christ to rule the Church. But they are not true popes because they have never received that authority because of their intention to subvert the Church. That's it in one sentence. So they remain pope-elects, just as you have a president-elect, a pope-elect. And deprived of authority, they are not true popes. It would be wrong to say they're true popes any more than it would, you would say that the president after election day or the president-elect is a true president. He's not. He has no power. He's nothing except an elect. So also we have pope-elects, but not popes. Why? Because they intend to impose upon the church an evil and false constitution. That is, they intend to pervert Catholic doctrine through Vatican II and its ultimate and its uh, subsequent reforms, and, and to alter the faith of the Catholic Church, which they have done. When you see the statistics, I gave a, the, the Fresno talk, what is known as the Fresno uh, conference, where I give all the statistics of the loss of faith among people who call themselves Catholics. This is the effect of Vatican II, <clears throat> in contrast to what was before Vatican II. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. And then if you look at the tremendous loss of faith and the breakdown of all Catholic institutions, the breakdown of Catholic universities where, I mean, you have people in those universities who are radical leftists who don't believe anything about God or, or the Catholic Church or anything. I mean, it's just chaos. It, it's a, it's a, a dogmatic free-for-all. And this is what has been imposed by Vatican II. You go to your parish church, you, you can't bear it. Why can't you bear it? Because if you retain the Catholic faith, that grinds against your Catholic faith because it is man-centered, it is ecumenical, it, it is stripped of dogma, it is Protestant, essentially. Just as if you went into a Protestant church, you'd say, well, you know, this doesn't mean anything to me. This is, this is not my religion. And, you know, week by week, people have been, have been uh, given this dose of the Novus Ordo and they have lost the faith. 
See, so that that's the um, the 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 point is that they are imposing upon the Catholic Church a false religion, and therefore are positing a uh, um, an obstacle uh, to the the authority. Uh, give you some examples. Uh, let's say a person is going to marry his fiance and. Uh, the, he decides the morning of the wedding, I don't intend to marry this girl at all. I, mean, you know, I have no intention whatsoever to marry this girl. But he comes down the aisle, he goes through all of the form of the marriage ceremony and, and everything with the interior intention of not marrying. In the eyes of the church's law, he is married. In the eyes of God, he is not married. See, Externally, he went through everything, but he's not married because he did not have the intention to go through with it. So also, I gave the example of a president who would say, I don't swear to the existing constitution. I will swear to the one I want. He would not receive the power because he posits an obstacle to the passage of power. If he were to remove the obstacle and say, okay, I repent of my idea, I will swear to the 1789 Constitution, then he could be sworn in and he receives the power. So the intention to uphold the good of the church is essential to receiving the power. And this intention to impose a new religion on the church, it posits an obstacle to the reception of the power. And that's why we say materially they are popes, that is, they have designation. Formally, that means uh, according to authority, they have no authority, they are not true popes. And, and they are, are, as I said before, it's, it's a dead body of authority, just as the matter of a human being is merely a body. So also what you're seeing in this Novus Ordo hierarchy is a dead body of a hierarchy. Dead bodies can be resurrected by God, but you're looking at a dead body. Well, so speaking of resurrections by God and miracles, Your Excellency, someone might say, all right, that I, I heard everything you said. And as I say, in the show notes, you'll be able to read uh, all 10 pages of His Excellency's uh, explanation, as well as he has an extensive list of questions and answers, which we don't have time to get into in today's episode. But some might say, that's fine, Your Excellency. You and Father Chikata both believe in miracles, which is true. But you're both, in terms of the restoration here, looking at the same miracle. The totalists will say there will need to be a miracle. There will be some designation uh, by God. And you think that Bergoglio will convert. That's even a, almost a greater miracle. So why is totalism not a viable solution? Because totalism... Uh, requires a designation from God. See, it, it's saying that the, the the rope of designation and the power to designate has been broken. So we have no valid, no valid cardinals, no valid electors. Right, no valid electors. I mean, cardinals. That, that's really a it's a electors to the papacy. There's no way of getting a legitimate designation in this in this thing because you have cut the rope. It, it, it not only is this sort of like two ropes, one is of authority, 
One is of designation. The authority is occasionally interrupted by the death of the Pope. But the designation is always there. The power to designate is always there. That's the, the continuity that must always exist, and Catholic theologians say that explicitly. That the Church must always have the power to designate a, uh, a new Pope. So, the, the, so they, they have two avenues. One is to say that God will intervene uh, and, and somehow designate. The problem with that is twofold. One, Christ will come again only once. You see, and that's the end of the church. See, so he, he cannot come again and designate. It would be against revelation to say that he would come again. Unless you say that, well, he'll do it through a private revelation. Or could it be Our Lady would come, they might say. Our Lady's not the head of the church. She cannot designate. She's not the head of the Catholic Church. Say our Lord appeared to somebody. Then the designation depends upon the credibility of that seer. Now let's say that really was true. Our Lord came and designated somebody and the seer said he has designated Jason. <laughs> Which would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> uh, do you know how many other seers would have visions? Right, simultaneously, of course. Right, and oh, the, you know, this one and my brother-in-law got designated, and <laughs> and the the uh, also it it has that problem of the privacy of the revelation and the credibility of the seer. The seer might be crazy. It might be his or her her imagination. So you can't have the continuity of the Catholic Church depend upon a seer. So you can't have the public continuity of apostolicity depend upon the message of a seer. So that, that's that problem. Secondly, uh, Christ appears in the heavens and designates somebody. That's his second coming. And he wouldn't designate anybody because he's come back. Right. <laughs> you see, so that's the problem. The other avenue they have is conclavism. And that is that all traditional Catholics come together uh, or all traditional bishops come together and elect a pope. And that suffers from a lot of things. One is that who's to decide you know, who's going to participate in the election? Uh, and, uh, there's, there's no legal process there. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, there, there's no, who says you have the right to vote? The, the, uh, it, would, it would fail and fall flat on its face, and all attempts to, of it have fallen flat on their face because of that problem. I'm not obliged to recognize somebody that was elected by a few friends, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a storefront, you know, to, to, to mention one of those cases. I mean, I have no obligation to see that man as the Pope or, you know, somebody in Europe that was a Linus II or something that was... Uh, designated in some sort of secret thing, and and well, yeah, Pius Thirteenth in Montana or something like that. Right, you know, I think he was elected over the internet. Uh, I mean, I mean, and those are you know cases that are extreme, we might say, but even a very well organized thing would suffer from the fact that who says who can vote? 
Right. And and to bring back to your point, you see about our Lord coming again. Uh, some some might say, well, well, your Excellency, couldn't our Lord choose to do that? And I think one of your responses, which I thought was was at least was very striking to me, was yes, but that would be a break with the apostolic tradition of St. Peter. It would be this person would be starting new. Right. But this person would not be a successor. He would not be a successor of St. Peter. It wouldn't mean that he wouldn't be the Pope and it wouldn't mean that our Lord couldn't do that. But it would be a, a he would he would not be part of the apostolic succession. Correct. Correct. Obviously, Christ has the power to designate whomever he pleases, but he would that would be a new line. It's like a, when the Plantagenets in England uh, uh, died off and, and then you had a new line of the Tudors or whatever it was. Uh, you, you have a, a, a new regime, a, a new, you have a new church. It's a different body. You see, it's not the one that was founded upon St. Peter and the Apostles, and which has a year-by-year a -year continuity. The, the totalist system slices that rope. It's finished. It's done. The continuity of apostolic designation is finished in that system. And that's why it's dangerous, because it does not correspond to the demand of Vatican I that there be perpetual successors. See, and then it's only path that unless they can come up with something better, and that's why I said, you know, I'm listening, unless they can come up with something better, is a seer, a second coming, which is, you know, or one and a half coming, you know, where Christ appears in the sky or something like that, or a, a, uh, uh, the, uh, a conclave, which is chaos, and which again has no continuity. We don't have the, the continuity of designation. Uh, some, some might say, is there a possible other way that you haven't foreseen? So you might you, you could say you are an opinionist on the thesis insofar as if someone has a better argument to put forward that you are listening. I'm always listening to arguments. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm an opinionist on the thesis uh, because no matter what, the reality is before us that that these things are true. That the that the Nova Sordo has done nothing to stop the continuity of designation. What they have stopped is the authority because of their intention to pervert the church. So that's the reality. And therefore, the, the reality is there. You still have a rope. See, no matter what other thing you want to say about it, that rope is still there. That, that line from St. Peter to ourselves is still there. So his Excellency And that accounts... Okay, uh, let me say that that accounts too for uh, the visibility of the church in as much as you have a visible material hierarchy that can claim uh, a legitimate succession to what went before. So His Excellency wrote this in 2002, and he used, obviously, the, the, the claimant at the time, Ratzinger, and I'm going to read part of his conclusion. That was JP2. 2002 well, it, was JP2. Right, but you have you have Ratzinger in 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 the uh, in the thesis in the the draft that we have. So I was going to say that's that I'm... because we do a search and change the name every time a new <laughs> Pope is elected. That's why that's true. So I'm I'm going to do this virtually, and and I'm going to use the word uh, Bergoglio wherever Ratzinger okay. is. Okay. 
Yes. The thesis holds that owing to the fact that the Novus Ordites gained positions of authority by legal means, they possess legally and legitimately the positions of power, but do not have the power which ordinarily goes with these positions. They lack this power since they intend to oppose upon the church false doctrines, false worship, and evil disciplines, which are contrary to the church's essential ends and goals. Because the power of designation to office pertains to the purely legal and material side of authority, the Novus Ordites possess the power to legitimately designate to positions of power until such time as this power is legally removed from them. As a result, there is a material hierarchy in place, that is, someone legally nominated to be a pope, and others legally nominated to be bishops, and others legally nominated to be electors of popes, but none of these has any jurisdiction and obedience is owed to none of them. Because they lack the authority, which is the form which makes them to be what they are, Bergoglio is a false pope and the bishops are false bishops. The cardinals are true electors to the extent that they are legally nominated to be designators of the pope, but their role pertains to the material order of authority, the order of designation only. The thesis renders to the factual what is fact and renders to legality what is legal. The factual is the formal and the legal is the material. The key to understanding the thesis is this. Jurisdiction comes directly from divine authority. Designation to receive jurisdiction comes from the ecclesiastical authority. What comes directly from God is nullified by the contrary intentions of Bergoglio. What comes from ecclesiastical authority can only be nullified by ecclesiastical authority. So we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I think we've done a good job of walking through all the principles that you wanted to address, as well as your arguments. Is there anything you'd like to add before we end today's episode? Uh, just to clarify that last thing that you said, when I say ecclesiastical authority, I mean authority to designate. Uh, the, the ability might be a better word, because people might say, well, you're using authority twice, there, but there is a... Uh, a capacity, a legal capacity to designate, just as I have a capacity to designate the president. See, but, and then some might say, well, that means you're giving them power. No, I have no power. I can designate, but I have no jurisdiction to make a law. The very word jurisdiction means saying the law. That's what it derives from in Latin, saying the law. So when we're talking about authority in the strict sense, we're talking about that ability to make a law that binds in conscience. These people have no such authority. But there remains this, what we might call, legal capacity, that might be a better word, to designate. And it's legitimate. It goes on and on. It's passed on and on because they intend to designate. As I said, if, if they gave that up and said we're not, you know, we're not designating anybody as bishops or popes, then they would lose that too. But they intend that good, that goal, that is proper to the church as it is a body. And, and like it or not, I mean, Bishop Gerard de Laurier, who was the first to, to say this thesis, uh, it, he said, my lips burn when I say this because it is so disgusting. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, to, to even give these people this, this, uh, aspect of authority is is horrible. I mean, th these are the, the perverters of the Catholic Church. So I, I just want to make clear that, that the only thing that they possess is a capacity, an ability to designate. 
They don't possess any authority to rule the church. That's very important. So I, I may I may even revise that a little bit because it, it might be confusing to the average person. Uh, authority to designate is not the same thing at all as authority to rule. Uh, that's my point. All right. And, and that will bring us back as we end our episode back to the beginning of the episode where I talked about being at dinner. You see, and some of our listeners might feel a bit like I did at that point. And they may say, oh, all right, you're actually, I've heard you and I, I understand this. Um, but, you know, I'm just a simple layman and, and these are issues for priests to worry about. And, and I've got other things. To, I'm just going to go and say my rosary tonight and I'll pray for you, Your Excellency. And, and um, you know, this is just too complicated for me. I'm just a simple layman. Well, uh, I think it is complicated for the average layperson, but I think they understand it implicitly. Uh, and I would say for, for this reason that they care about Bergoglio. See, and they even call him the Pope. I mean, I don't know how many of our parishioners who are staunch Sedevacantists call him the Pope. <laughs> Why? Because he's designated. He's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's not some sort of Coptic Pope in Egypt who's also called the Pope. He is somebody that has come through the ranks. Uh, it'd be like um, an airline pilot I'm always going back to my famous airline uh, analogies, but let's say he's, you know, uh, flying for so-and-so airlines for for 25 years. He is converted over to jihadism. And he decides that he's going to take that airplane and drive it into a building. All right. By that very fact, he loses his authority to drive that airplane or fly that airplane. I mean, anybody in his right mind would say, you can't you know, fly this airplane. And they would pull him out of the seat if they could and, and tie him up and, and who knows what else they would do to him. They, 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 they would immediately react that way. But nonetheless, he would still retain his pilot's license. He would still wear the uniform of the so-and-so airlines and, and still be a designated pilot. You see, until the airline says, you're dirt, we're taking all of that away from you, and the FAA says, we're taking your license away, you're, you're horrible, and you're going into prison for the rest of your life. You see, see that's the legal. But the, the fact that he is going to pervert the aircraft and pervert the whole purpose of the flight removes from him the authority to, to fly that plane. I mean, that, that's, that's an example. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what I would, you know, that, that, and so they're reacting implicitly, I think they understand it, but the, all of the theological mechanics, we might say, that I have, have put out, they may not understand because it involves philosophy. And, and you have to absorb philosophy. It's not something you can do in, in just, you know, an hour. Uh, it, you have to absorb it in your mind. And, and yes, it is uh, difficult. But I think implicitly they understand it. And I think it's, I have seen it satisfy the minds of so many people. So many people that I know have become Sedevacantists because and only because of the thesis. Because they understand implicitly the necessity of the continuity of the church as an institution. 
They understand that implicitly. And they can't put their minds around Sedevacantism because it does slice that rope. It breaks the, the continuity. They can't figure that out. They don't like it. And they say, well, you know, we've got to have a pope or we've got to have something. We have to have, you know, they, 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 in, in, a, in a way that's confused, they understand that there's got to be continuity. And they, 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 they hear the thesis. They say, that's it. That answers my questions. That solves my problem. Uh, I am a Sedevacantist because of that. I've seen that many, many, many times, and people have told me I would not be a Sedevacantist except for the thesis. All right. So I will invite our listeners to to read the study. As I said, it will be linked in today's show notes. Um, and pray and consider uh, what His Excellency has also shared in this episode to accompany that reading and that studying on your own time. Thanks, as always, for your time, Your Excellency. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the sponsorship of myself, Frankie Logue, and a group of anonymous laymen in honor and memory of Bishop Gerard de Laurier and Archbishop Took, two of the veterans of the traditional movement. We would also like to remind you once again that we are currently fundraising for the St. Edmund Mission of the United Kingdom. To donate, please visit catholicmass.co.uk. That's catholicmass.co.uk.